You're listening to It's More Complicated Than That, a podcast about world affairs produced by the students and faculty of the International Relations Program at Hobart and William Smith Colleges in Geneva, New York. Hi, I'm Kevin Dunn, Professor of Political Science and Director of the International Relations Program at HWS and co-host of this podcast. And I'm Stacey philbrick Yadav, Associate Professor and Chair of Political Science. Today's episode focuses on the political and economic costs of COVID-19 in Latin America. We're joined with the architect of this episode, Carling Landish. Hi, Carling. Can you start by telling us a little bit about yourself? Hi, my name is Carling Landesh and I'm a senior from Sarasota, Florida. I am double majoring in international relations and economics with a minor in Latin American studies. On campus, I am involved in a few community service opportunities, policy-based clubs, student government, and our voting participation student initiative, HWS Votes. Carling, it's really nice to have you here. Can you just talk about how you came to this topic? Yes, thanks for having me. Um, I became interested in this topic for a few different reasons. One, after returning from my study abroad trip to Mendoza, Argentina in the fall of 2018, where I studied culture, politics, and economics of the region. And also, after taking a few economic development and international economics courses at HWS, With my own interest in global politics, I found myself particularly interested in the intersection of economic development and Latin American politics. So from there, I was able to foster the idea for this conversation. So as social science folks, we all appreciate the role of political institutions and public policy in shaping outcomes. But it's been really interesting to see how people deal with the issue through public culture and the arts. Kevin found a great compilation of music videos by different artists from across Latin America, a kind of Corona playlist, and we're going to share it with you all. And what really stood out to me was their range. So some, like Ruben Blades, sorry, not a Spanish speaker, seemed like a public service announcement and clearly echoed messages coming from public health officials. Others were satirical, campy efforts to lighten the lockdown mood. But my favorite was probably the Peruvian Gaino which ended by making a really provocative indigenous political claim. Take the settlers, but leave my Peru alone. I'm wondering if you could explain a little bit about that. Who are the settlers and how does that fit COVID-19 into some kind of existing political narrative in Latin American politics? For sure. So the settlers mentioned in this song are referencing those who enter indigenous territories and engage in extractive behaviors, such as mining, deforestation, and oil exploration. This, of course, is for economic gain at the expense of the safety and well-being of the indigenous communities. The band, Los Chugaranos, compares the COVID-19 virus to the threat of settlers that impacted Peru's indigenous population centuries ago. By making this song relatable to the indigenous Peruvian communities that make up about 26% of the total population, it is a quite an effective way to send a message about listening to the president, the government, and to wash your hands. Unfortunately, the country of Peru has not been able to handle the spread of this pandemic that well politically. So it's very interesting to see the local artists have participated in educating the public to follow proper COVID-19 precautions. You know, we're going to put a a link to that list of those music videos in the description of this podcast. But let's listen to that song now. It's called COVID-19. As you said, it's by the group Los Chugaranos. (laughs) 
llegaste en la China, luego llegaste al Japón, empezaste en la China, luego llegaste al Japón, regresaste por España, hoy estás en mi Perú, regresaste por España, hoy estás en mi Perú. a los forasteros de calibre a mi Perú llévate a los forasteros de calibre a mi Perú escuchen al presidente confíen en esa luz mañana sacas tu cita y al año de ahí vienes tú mejor lavate las manos esa es la mejor opción porque el coronavirus donde lleva el panteón, escuchen al presidente, confíen en el salud, mañana sacas tu cita y al año te atiendes tú, mejor lavate las manos, que es la mejor opción, porque el coronavirus después te lleva al panteón. For this episode, Carling, you sat down with Scott McKinney, Professor Emeritus of Economics here at HWS, and the former director of both their Latin American Studies program, as well as the International Relations program. So let's listen to that conversation now. Well, hello. Um, I'm very excited um, to talk to you about kind of what's happening in Latin America with um, the coronavirus and kind of its economic impacts. Um, so I kind of wanted to um, basically just do a regional cross-comparison of what's happening and how that has lasting effects in terms of economic policy. So I was wondering if you could explain more of how COVID-19 has impacted Latin America, um, just because it was in May designated one of the epicenters of the uh, pandemic. So how, how has it been impacted, the, the region itself? It's really had an, uh, a tremendous and tragic impact. Um, People are particularly vulnerable, as, as, as everyone has pointed out. Latin America is just particularly vulnerable to the spread of the coronavirus um, because, I, you know, it's easy to start with poverty. But in fact, I think that <laughs> I ran a regression between poverty and, and, uh, and income levels per capita in Latin America. And it, it, was, it, was, it was positive. So poverty is not necessarily the critical factor, but inequality, the very poor condition of uh, uh, many people at the bottom of the economic scale, um, the places they live in squatter settlements without uh, water, without sewage, often without electricity, uh, high densities, um, the fact that over 50% of Latin Americans work in the informal sector and the fact that um, a, Latin America is the most urbanized developing uh, con, uh, region in the world. So it's really been hit hard. Um, there's a lot of illness. There's a lot of economic downturn. You know, the forecasts are for a 10% reduction in GDP uh, this year. Uh, and, and an awful lot of that 
will fall hardest on the poor. A lot of people who thought they were middle class will be poor again. So, um, and, uh, so it's really, really quite a, quite a serious impact. Right. And obviously, um, different countries with different governments have really had different responses um, due to uh, the pandemic. So I was wondering what, you know, what, are, what have been the differences in responses? What, um, you know, countries like Uruguay, Paraguay are faring well, but countries like Brazil, Mexico are not doing as well as some other countries in the region. Um, so I was wondering, how, how have different policies um, really impacted um, the responses to countries? You know, we can go deeper into um, the specific countries, but how, how have different countries' um, responses differed um, in response? Well, there have been the, um, the this is nothing but a, a serious cold responses in uh, Mexico and Brazil. Uh, there have been the very fast uh, shutdowns in Uruguay and Peru and other places. Um, there have been some countries have actually carried out, you know, um, stimulative packages, getting money to people. Others have, like Mexico, have have not. Uh, and it's just turned out that government response isn't necessarily the most critical thing, right? Peru responded quickly with a complete shutdown, um, serious quarantining. I had a, a friend from high school there. That's where I grew up in Lima. He was back there visiting his father, and he got stuck. And, and uh, his father lived in one of the high-rise apartment buildings overlooking the ocean in Miraflores. Outside, there were... There was a van and a jeep of Argentine people traveling through Latin America, and they were forced to stay there. And the people in the jeep had no bathroom access whatsoever, right? But the poverty overwhelmed that, right? The response was good, uh, but the poverty overwhelmed that. Uruguay, on the other hand, responded quickly um, they have a good health care system. They don't have uh, their level of their standard of living is higher. They don't have the poverty and the squatter settlements that Lima has. And so you can see the, what happens is a mix of how seriously you take it, how effectively you implement policies and the luck of, you know, what population you're dealing with. Definitely, definitely. So obviously Uruguay has done very well at its response, um, and it's been able to be more, um, I guess, aggressive with its testing. It's been able to, um, you know, use methods such as pool testing and contact tracing, um, which has been really great for its population of 3.5 million. However, you know, countries like Brazil um, have not been doing as well, um, and it's I think it's because of its political responses and its its government and the differences between the federal and the uh, more municipal um, governments. How how has I guess the political economy of that been impacting I guess the responses such as countries as Brazil or Mexico? Hmm. Well, obviously, Brazil's response has been completely un uncoordinated, right? Um, they have a leader who hasn't believed in it. Um, 
Brazil is one of the places along with uh, Bolivia and other places where people have been pushing all the random drugs that uh, are ineffective or, or, and, and harmful, right? So there was that dimension to the problem there. Um, so the policy was uncoordinated. Brazil actually has a long history of very effective health care, uh, uh, but it's been uh, hurt in the last few years. As you know, Latin America hasn't grown at all since 2012, so people have been cutting uh, services a lot. Uh, so that combination, uh, Brazil is a poorer country, and it is uh, got a much larger population in the favelas of Rio, Sao Paulo, and and lots of other you know smaller cities. I don't Montevideo, Montevideo just doesn't have that kind of problem. Right. Right. Um, just for our, our listeners, you know, you had mentioned that um, the region, the Latin American region itself has been lacking in its economic development. Could you explain maybe a few of the re- for, few of the reasons why that is the case? What, why has Latin America been lacking in its economic development and growth within the last, I guess, 10, 15 years? Yeah, the slowdown really started in 2012. The earlier part of um, the 2000s was really very, very good. There was another commodity boom, similar to the commodity boom of the 1970s, high petroleum prices, rapid growth. Um, um, Actually, Latin America just rolled right through, pretty much, not exactly, but was not as affected by the crisis in 2008 uh, as as we were here and Europe was. Um, But since then, commodity prices have been uh, lower economic growth around the world has been slower, and so uh, it just hasn't it just hasn't kept up. It grew, you know, something like thirty five percent from nineteen ninety four to two thousand and twelve. So that's not a bad not a bad record. I picked ninety four because that's the year that Latin America's GDP per capita returned to the 1980 level before the uh, debt crisis hit. So that was 14 years of of recovery, and then there was some nice growth there for uh, a period, and then the commodity boom ended. As you know, Latin America's economies are really driven by commodity demand and commodity prices. Right, right. And so, like many places around the world, um, different economic sectors are at loss just due to this global recession. Uh, Many Latin American economies rely on different sectors of tourism, natural resources, and agriculture. Do you mind exploring on how these sectors would be impacted due to COVID? How, um, specifically the Latin American region, how some of its main um, sectors are going to be impacted on a global global stage? Right. Well, Tourism is going to be just devastated, right? Because um, people just aren't allowed to go. <laughs> Actually, they don't want to go, and and Peru is not going to let them in, right? Uh, and lots of places aren't going to let them in. Um, tourism in. I, I don't know actually know about tourism in the Caribbean, but I noticed that there are a lot of islands that have very, very, very high. Uh, uh, rates of COVID, and I'm wondering if that's related to tourism. But certainly, 
in Peru, Mexico, and a lot of the other uh, major tourist sites, people simply are, are not going to go, right? Uh, if you're talking about natural resources, then the production can be, can, can continue, right? But the prices are low. And since most of the economies in the world are, are declining, the demand is going to be smaller, the prices are going to be lower, so there's going to be a lot of of pain there. Agriculture, I think, is generally uh, doing well, right? Um, the demand for food, I think, is relatively stable in places like the United States. And, you know, I can go to Wegmans and get my Peruvian blueberries, and I can go to Wegmans and get my uh, Peruvian asparagus, and all these things are, are still flowing in. So I think that Agriculture is probably, uh, relatively speaking, the strongest, though it will be affected by the economic downturn, right? Um, but it won't be affected by lower prices as natural resources are or complete shutdown as tourism is. Right, yes, that's, that's a big impact. Um, a lot of what we had just talked about was more on the formal sectors, more of the formal markets. Um, you had mentioned earlier about the informal uh, markets, how um, over 50% of uh, the populations is, is part of the informal sectors or um, working um, jobs that are um, reliant on the success of others mm -hmm. um, and how that's really impacting families. Um, do you mind um, going more into um, the importance of the informal sector in Latin America and just a little bit more about what that entitles? Well, um, it used to be that informality was, there were three sections of informality that were analyzed. One, the housing uh, the other uh, uh, w jobs, and the third one was uh, transportation. As those urban areas expanded and, and the squatter settlements uh, expanded, um, transport, uh, 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 governmental transportation systems couldn't keep up, and so informal transportation uh, systems came in. So, you know, those jobs in the informal sector uh, stretch from the classic picture, um, selling cigarettes one at a time uh, at a street corner, to uh, more interesting variants like uh, a scene from Lima in 1989 at a street corner, women dressed in indigenous um, outfits are selling boxed wine, and suddenly a BMW pulls up, a white man gets out, and he distributes more boxed wine to the indigenous women who are selling it, right? Or um, Ecuador in the mid-90s, um, a pickup truck pulls up at a, at a textile firm. The textile firm produces sheet material, just these broad bands of, of uh, bed sheet material coming off this beautiful machine from Italy. And the guy buys a bunch of it, sticks it in his pickup truck, and he's going to go home, and he's going to make fitted sheets in his home, and he's going to sell them in an informal market, right? So, well, the most important thing, well, the thing about the informal employment is those people say, if I don't work, I don't eat, so I have to go to work. So they become a kind of a part of the spread of the disease. Um, 
and the demand for their products is going to be uh, down just because, you know, the Latin American economy, I th the forecast is for a 9% decline. Did I say that already? In 2020. So um, um, it, life is going to be very hard. Right. No, definitely. So many, so many people will be, will be impacted. And um, just over the past years, um, there have been many currency issues, um, issues of corruption within the government and, and IMF loan defaults. Um, so I was, I was just wondering what your thoughts were um, on, will Latin America be able to bounce back at any point? Do you think that, you know, we will, or the, the region itself will be able to come back, will, um, like the other regions in the world? Um, and what, I guess, government and economic factors um, are needed um, to, I guess, have a good economic growth? Um, right. And obviously this won't happen within the next few years, but, you know, looking into the future, what is, what is needed to bring back the economic growth of this region? Hmm. Well, I think the bounce back is going to be s slow and time-consuming, right? I think this is going to be very, very, very hard. Um, I think maybe this experience will accentuate uh, the need for good health care as kind of a, uh, a foundation for any kind of economic uh, growth. I think that more Latin American countries might, um, as you say, they're in all sorts of crises. They've built up too much debt. Et cetera, et cetera. Uh, they're very afraid of inflation. Um, if they're trying to be responsible, they're trying to carry out, you know, good neoliberal policies. But this might be the time to ignore that. I mean, certainly we are in the United States, right? The United States government is spending lots of money. The Federal Reserve Bank is um, expanding the money supply and keeping interest rates low. Um, and I think in a time of decline, um, this is the time to, to do that, to have more government spending in Latin America, and in fact, not build up debt, but just print money. Um, I think if you could ever get away with it, now is the time that you could get away with it, right? So I think, I think more active um, economic policies might get things going. And then, as always, it depends on the world market, right? Um, as the rest of the world comes out of uh, the pandemic, their demand, their consumption will rise, their demand will rise, and, and Latin America will, will be brought along. Oh, the other thing, the, the other thing, uh, if I may, uh, is um, the importance of education, right, has really been a part of Latin America's growth these last couple of decades. And a lot of people have had to abandon that education because they couldn't pay for the tuition. That's a place, you know, where a government could just say, let's just do it. <laughs> these kids need an education and, and, and we don't want to hold them back at this particular moment, right? So that, that, that would be an easy place to, to spend more money. For sure, for sure. Um, so looking into kind of the future and more of a, a global um, aspect, um, you know, internationally, um, do you believe that there's any, you know, bilateral or multilateral policy um, responses um, that would be effective um, for, you know, Latin Americans, uh, Latin American economies to um, rebounce back? 
Right. I think that multilaterally, um, certainly uh, health would be an area. Uh, Latin America could certainly use um, help. Um, right? I can't remember which country it was I was reading about, but they said, maybe it was Ecuador, they said, you know, we can't get the things we need to protect our people because we're being outbid in the global marketplace by richer countries, right? And of course, Trump has pulled us out of the World Health Organization, and and but 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 this is really a time where uh, people could work together and make uh, medication and knowledge uh, uh, accessible to people in Latin America. I think that would be a big. A big, a good policy to carry out. And the other thing that strikes me is that uh, it might be a good time not to worry too much uh, about debt, that is to say international debt. It, I think it's a time where uh, the IMF could step in, and I don't know what, uh, say, we're not going to allow any interest to build up over this period, or we're going to, um, you know, cut out some of this debt, give it, give it a haircut, or uh, you know, or give you two years to to recover, something like that. Those are the things that occur to me as as things that the international community could do. So do you have any um, closing remarks on the um, political or economic factors of um, the Latin American response to uh, COVID-19 and and any future plans that you think would be best? Well, we've talked a a little bit about the fact that um, policy is just a minor player and and how things are going to turn out. Um, The quality of the healthcare system, um, poverty, slums, favelas, all of those things are are big influences, but I'm struck by the variety of of political responses. I'm struck by places like Cuba, where they've been able to use a good old-fashioned totalitarian state to keep things under control. I've been struck also by the reported figures, and who knows if they are correct or not, from Venezuela, where also a totalitarian uh, government has been, you know, Venezuela is a place that should have an incredible level of coronavirus because all these people are coming back from Colombia and and Peru, uh, and who knows, you know, how many of them are carrying it, and their health care system is shattered. But Maduro, you know, puts them in hotel rooms and camps and keeps them away from uh, the general population and seems to some extent to have uh, been more successful than Peru, for example, or Chile even, remarkably. Um, uh, And certainly, um, I mean, that's similar to China, right? (laughs) Right? Um, So the long-term response, you know, I guess the question that I would put out there is how will this affect politics and the political preferences of people in Latin America uh, in the years to come? Because um, 
you know, la mano dura, the hard hand uh, of, uh, of an authoritarian leader, has always been seen as a reasonable sort of political uh, solution to really difficult, uh, chaotic times. So, um, you know, and we have the example of Uruguay in there as well. Um, so there are a lot of interesting questions about politics and the most effective methods of responding to times of, of, of uh, serious crisis. There are a lot of questions that, that uh, it'll be fascinating to see how they um, develop, right? I don't have a clue, and I'm not going <laughs> to predict anything. <laughs> it's just going to be very interesting to see how it goes. Um, thank you so much, um, Professor McKinney. I really appreciate you coming and, and talking about this um, truly fascinating um, part of the world and how the pandemic has really um, impacted um, that region. Um, so thank you so much for, for coming and chatting with me. Well, it was a great, great pleasure. That was a fascinating conversation. I'm particularly struck by how vastly different the experiences have been in Latin America compared to Africa, which is actually my region of study. You know, initially, there were expectations that the pandemic was going to be devastating to Africa, and I was fully anticipating to see some really uh, high numbers of, of cases and deaths, especially given the high level of poverty and the weak healthcare systems across the continent, and in particularly in vulnerable urban spaces like Johannesburg, Pretoria, Nairobi, Lagos, where you see high densities of population that are often lacking access to clean drinking water and basic sanitization. A situation that's not unlike uh, Latin America, as Professor McKinney mentioned. But while Africa's COVID cases have been lower than any other region in the world, the numbers have been staggering in Latin America. Carlin, were there some things that Professor McKinney said that struck you about the uniqueness of the Latin American experience? Of course, of course. I think that it's very interesting discussing the different political responses throughout the region and the unique problems that each, each country faces. It's clear that the different types of governments with differing presidents have impacted the policy responses, but that's the basis of inequalities in societies of the region that have exacerbated the pandemic's reach in the region. I also found it specifically interesting when Professor McKinney discussed the impact of the highly urbanized region and the apparent informal sector on the region's response as well. The reach of this pandemic has had on the urban communities seems overwhelming. I also was struck by Professor McKinney's emphasis on the impact not only of inequality, but informality, creating kind of precarious conditions that leave people especially vulnerable. I guess I had to think about that in terms of the Middle East and North Africa. This is a region that has some really striking similarities to Latin America in terms of inequality, informality, and urbanization, but one where there's an additional dynamic that intersects with it, the number of ongoing armed conflicts. If you think about what features of informality contribute to people's risk of disease, then certainly we should be thinking about the role of displacement and migration too, because it's really associated. In Yemen, where my work is focused, for example, more than half of the country's school buildings are closed, but it's not because of COVID, it's to house the internally displaced. So civil war also really increases a whole host of health risks, but make it really hard to address through something like public health infrastructure at the policy level. Yeah, it's been really interesting to see how COVID has been impacting Yemen as well as Syria and some other places in your region that are also struggling with uh, civil war. 
And I was really you know, struck by the Professor McKinney's assessment about the long-term economic damage for the region of Latin America. That was sobering. We tend to focus on the pursuit of a vaccine, but I don't think there's a lot of attention being paid to the long-term kind of global economic implications that we're going to be seeing for years to come. That's going to be felt, I think, very differently uh, across regions, within regions, within countries. Um, and I was really struck by Professor McKinney's observation that economic neoliberalism, the kind of model that's been embraced or uh, forced upon a number of states for several decades now, is probably not the path moving forward. And that the region in Latin America was very ripe for a return to state-led development projects. Carlin, what did you think of that conclusion? So while in theory this sounds effective, I think it's often difficult to expect developing countries to have a more active government in the future of its development. More state-led development projects are only possible if political and economic institutions are apparent. And if years of stagnant growth rates have proved anything, I don't think that many countries in Latin America have the capability to support more state-run projects as such. Even looking at how these countries have responded to this pandemic over the last six months just proves that these governments lack organization, implementation of plans, resource availability, and even sometimes funding to provide a united pandemic response that would be delivered effectively. We must also consider the types of governments that these countries have, as some are more democratic and some are, well, more autocratic. So this will, of course, impact any economic responses. But yes, if Latin American countries can focus on resource mobilization and support market successes, I do believe that economic growth in the future is possible. Yeah, so the ability to engage in state-led development will depend in large part on the coherence of the state itself. And decades of reforms have already hollowed out so much that it's really hard to know in some places what's left. In Latin America, the prospects might be greater than in the Middle East and North Africa. I'm not sure. But I suspect that in both regions and elsewhere, we're going to continue to see governments and donor agencies try to fill immediate gaps on a kind of ad hoc basis. And longer term planning is really going to be dependent on addressing some of the region's underlying conflicts, as well as its baseline uh, political dynamics. Yeah, I think that's true uh, across the continent in Africa as well. Uh, the state capacity hasn't been there for dealing with development in general. One of the lucky things that has happened is that COVID-19 has not impacted Africa to the extent that it has in other regions because the African state is not probably going to be a successful vehicle for, for driving uh, growth afterwards. One final observation, if I may, is to acknowledge the significant variations in the pandemic's impact across economic sectors, demographic groups, geographic regions, as well as within and between individual Latin American countries, illustrating once again the complexities on the topic under discussion. I mean, after all, no matter how sophisticated our analysis, one can always be assured that it's more complicated than that. Uh, Professor Don. You've been listening to It's More Complicated Than That, a podcast on world affairs produced by the students and faculty of the International Relations Program at Hobart and William Smith Colleges. This episode was conceived by Carlene Landash, hosted by Stacey Philbrick Yadav and Kevin Dunn. The chief engineer was me, Kelly Walker. This has been a production of the IR program at HWS and the Geneva Sound Factory.